All right, well, tonight we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, looking at verses 12 through 14, the last three remaining verses uh, in the book of 1 Peter. And I'll be uh, bringing the uh, text up on the screen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Since the reading of God's holy word. So we have finally made it to the end of the book of 1 Peter, and normally what I'll do is I'll actually finish through the whole book, and then I'll come back and do a whole separate sermon on the book. Uh, But uh, it turns out that when you read these verses, particularly verse 12, Peter actually sums up the book for us. So uh, we're just going to take Peter's cue and, and, and go ahead and work from what he says his letter is about Tonight, uh, there are also some interesting uh, points that he raises that uh, we need to address uh, by this uh, these verses that are uh, that tap into a lot of uh, church history and um, some interesting points of uh, concern for us tonight. So, uh, so we're going to look at three things tonight with this text. We are going to first consider a, a notable feature of many New Testament letters. Uh, second, uh, we are going to consider Peter's summary of his own letter. And then third, we will consider Peter's conclusion about the community of God. And so first, let's consider a feature of uh, New Testament letters, of many New Testament letters, not all of them, and that is the use of a scribe. So, uh, so let's talk a bit about uh, how scribes work. Um, Peter mentions a guy named Silvanus, uh, which we believe to be known as Silas. Uh, oftentimes, they would have multiple names in the ancient world, and so uh, this is Silas, who is uh, known as uh, a close companion to Paul, and one who uh, at times had served as Paul's own scribe. Uh, now, it's not exactly clear uh, whether Silas merely delivered this letter, what he means by the preposition by Silvanus, um, or if that he actually used Silvanus as a scribe. Uh, Many scholars have written that, that you know made the point that even if uh, even if Silas wasn't the scribe for Peter, it's likely that he used a scribe. And uh, um, but Silas, Peter says, is a faithful brother. He's one that you can that you can trust to deliver the letter at the very least um, unmolested. So now I mentioned uh, I meant I mentioned this about scribes because there are sometimes these little details that can catch us off guard particularly if we're being challenged on something like the inspiration of the scriptures. Uh, so many in the church imagine the books and letters of the Bible essentially to be handwritten by the apostles themselves, and no doubt many of them were. Uh, but we know that Luke and Mark were not apostles. Uh, the author of Hebrews is unknown to us, although some have speculated that it might be Paul. Uh, one of my professors thinks that it's Silas, actually. Uh, I kind of think it might be Apollos. Makes more sense to me, uh, given some of the context. Um, but we'll never actually know, because he doesn't tell us. Uh, now, it's important for us to understand how the Bible's actually put together, and that means to understand that not, 
uh, not everyone who wrote the Bible um, was directly an apostle or a prophet. You know, Mark essentially, we believe, worked largely from the knowledge of Peter. That goes back to a, a fragment of a work from Papias, a church father, uh, after the apostles. He was, I believe, discipled by John himself. Um, and, uh, and he said that, um, that Mark had compiled uh, much of Peter's own testimony, his eyewitness testimony regarding Christ, which we believe to be the gospel of Mark. So, uh, but someone may object that... Um, a scribe may be functioning as a kind of editor here, adding his own flourishes and more concerning his own errors into the text. Uh, but uh, as, as many scholars are, uh, will note uh, that uh, people who not everybody wrote lots of letters in the first century, if you wrote letters, you usually would use a scribe or uh, there's a fancy word for it. It's an amanuensis. So you have to practice how to say that. All right. Uh, and and, and, and the thing is, is that scribes don't function like creative directors as much as they do more like court stenographers who will use that shorthand, right, uh, to transcribe what was said. And now, yeah, there may be some minor editing between the apostle as he says it, and he may not get it exactly like, exactly, you know, he may communicate it. We don't actually know, right? We weren't in the room. But, we, but that's actually not an issue, and I'll, I'll explain why in a minute when we uh, talk about inspiration. But I bring this up uh, because, uh, another reason that I bring this up, because when I entered seminary myself, I entered with a very um, limited, limited understanding of uh, how the Bible that I held in my hands, that I believed in my heart, uh, came into being. You know, And so as far as I knew, it was all written by prophets and apostles, by the Holy Spirit, and that's true. It's just incomplete. There's just more to that understanding. And so, uh, and so I don't want anyone to be shocked or thrown off when you run into someone who's done their homework and they start throwing, well, well you know, see, he used to scribe and start kind of inserting these little things. And it's interesting because pastors often will skip this part of the, the letter, right? Because that's the boring part, right? And nobody wants to hear about scribes and no one wants to hear blah, blah, blah. But then someone find, someone has this throw, you know, something like this gets thrown in their face, and they're like, well, my pastor's never talked about that. And some start doing that thing where they go, they're holding out on me. You know, they must know something because they've never talked about this. Or never, and they were like, I just thought it would bore you. You know, like so, um, so at the risk of boring you, we talk about scribes. Uh, so, but let's uh, but in order to address the issue, let's we need to consider uh, properly how inspiration works. So when I ask my children uh, who wrote the Bible, they're going to tell me chosen men wrote the Bible who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Children's Catechism. So, uh, and uh, now note, though, that their answer says chosen men. doesn't say apostles and prophets because not all people who wrote the Bible were apostles and prophets. And we don't even, there's a lot of books of the Bible. We don't know who wrote them. But this, uh, uh, but um, so how does this work? Well, some ha- someone talk about inspiration of the Bible, how the Bible was uh, inspired. It's you know it's not like what Tommy told me about someone he knew when he was working that, that said they found the Bible inspiring. That is not what we mean when we say inspiration, right? We talk about the actual Holy Spirit working in God's people to produce the Scriptures, and so uh, and so uh, and so some have a view of what's called dictation theory, which is essentially that. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit kind of took over, you know, put him in a trance 
and kind of took over John, and he kind of didn't know what was happening, and just right, 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 right. And then at the end, he came to himself and was like, well, there's Revelation, okay? Uh, but if you read the book of Revelation, that's not how it works, right? Because he goes, and then I saw, and then this happened to me, and then I saw this, and then they showed me this. Like, he's not, he's not going to do that if he's in a trance. And also, that's a pagan thing. That's called ecstatic revelation, and that is, like, you would go, you, if you wanted that, you would go over to a pagan temple, go do a bunch of drugs and with an oracle, all right? That's what you, that's what you would do to go get ecstatic revelation, um, but, uh, but that is not the doctrine of biblical inspiration. We don't believe that people went into trances and didn't understand what they were doing and just kind of, you know, just kind of these automatons that God was using to write the scriptures. Rather, we believe, because in that view, the Holy Spirit is working against human personality. It's overriding human personality. We don't believe that. We believe that the Holy Spirit worked through human personality. Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Luke, uh, Peter, uh, John, Paul, and, and so forth. He worked through them, through their personalities, through their vocabularies, through their experiences, through their circumstances, in order to bring forth everything that he wanted written. And some of them, uh, you know, some of them wrote their words th- themselves, and others, uh, and then others uh, wrote uh, wrote the words uh, through a scribe. Um, but it's not as if the Holy Spirit was like, "Well, I want to write another gospel, but you used a scribe, and I only I can only work through one person at a time." You know, I have a rule. You know, it's like that's not how that works. So God uses the personality, gifts, circumstances, everything, even a scribe, in order to produce exactly what he wants written, to preserve what is written, and to spread what is written through the church, and to bring it into the canon of Scripture. Further, uh, the doctrine of inspiration of the Scripture not only holds that our Bible comes by the power of God through, chosen, uh, through these chosen men, but And not only do we believe that because it comes from the Holy Spirit that it is, it is without error in all that it teaches, but we also believe that the Holy Spirit continues to speak through the Scriptures to us today. It's not that the Holy Spirit simply produced a perfect book and so sweet. I found the one perfect book in the whole world, and that's what the inspiration means. That's true. But what it means is that the Holy Spirit is actually speaking to me as I read it. Right? And so that's, that's what it means. And so that, that's what the doctrine of inspiration is. not just about how the Bible came to be hundreds of years ago or, or over a thousand years ago or thousands of years ago. It's about, how, it's, it's about all of that true, but it's about how God uses the scriptures to speak to me again and again. In the Westminster Confession, um, over and over again, you're going to see a tandem that is put together. Two, two, two partners, they're like buddy cops, right? You know, you got the, you got the two cops all paired up, they're partners. And you see them all throughout the Westminster Confessions. They describe the operations of God in the church. And, and what is it? It's the spirit and the word. The Spirit and the Word, because the Spirit continues to speak through the, uh, through the Word of God to us today. And so one of my favorite examples of this comes from uh, a guy named Hugh Martin. He was, um, I think he was towards the end of the line of the Puritans, but, um, and, uh, but he just wrote, he wrote this book about this very point. And he says, so when you're reading the, you know, the Gospels and, and, you see, and, you, and you're reading about Jesus going, you know, going to the unclean leper and saying, you are clean, he's speaking to you, right? He's speaking to us. 
when he goes to when he goes to the you know the man who can't walk with the lame legs and he says stand up and walk and he then he goes to Levi the tax collector he says follow me he's speaking to us follow me get up you are healed you you come follow me and so and so that's the idea there and that that is the fullness of the doctrine of inspiration sometimes it's just treated as this kind of like why the Bible's right and that's true. But don't forget that this also, it means this is the means that God has given to us whereby the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Um, as, um, and, you know, that's like I've said before, the only inerrant inspired, uh, you know, part of the, of the preaching is when I read the bit at the beginning, <laughs> the scriptures. All right. Uh, and so the rest we have to test according to the word of God. But. And so, and so this is the, the fullness of the doctrine of inspiration. It includes scribes and circumstances and so much more than we can think of because God has, is able and has produced a written record that he wants us, uh, that he wants for his people, for his church. And so, uh, and he has written for us a letter by the Apostle Peter that we have been studying for many weeks and so with that, let us now turn to a summary of First Peter, which I would just summarize simply as faith in suffering. Faith in suffering. Now, Peter says that I've, he's, written to us, he's written to us briefly, giving exhortations and declarations. And that's exactly what his letter is, exhortations and declarations. And so first, let's just note that he says his writing is brief, right? And you're like, I've written letters before. I've never written a letter this long, okay? Uh, but, uh, but this highlights Peter's careful crafting of the letter for the benefit of the church. Peter is saying, I have not said everything I wanted to say. I have written to you briefly. It's the hardest thing is to be concise, right? That's much harder. Anybody can drone on and on. You're like, we know. We know, Pastor. No, but, but no, we, but anyone can drone on and on for, for a long time. It's hard to be clear and concise. That is what's challenging. And so Peter has, has not said everything. He's chosen carefully what he would say to this part of the church that is in suffering in this place called Asia Minor. So given this, we are, we are confirmed in, in engaging in a careful study of 1 Peter, not just blowing through it, but, but to take it slowly, to take it in chunks, to really think it through and try to apply it. And so we ought, we, we ought to read this letter through and receive you know, the major ideas and themes. We're, we're starting in the, in the uh, um, middle school, high school, Sunday school group, uh, Sunday school. We completed our previous unit of study just this week. And so next week, uh, I'm, we're going to start moving. And I told them I'm going to teach them how to study the Bible. And so I told them this week they've got to read Galatians twice. <laughs> because I want them to get the broad themes of the letter. And if they can, you know, read it in the whole one sitting. You know, just read it all. You know, it just, they, these, this was a letter. Take out the numbers, take out all that stuff, and just remember, this was a letter that was written by Peter to the church. And they didn't just go, okay, let's read chapter one. They just read it because, because there weren't any chapters or verse numbers at that time. But we also study, we ought to study this letter according to its parts to break it up into pieces, to consider how they relate to each other, and even how they relate to other letters in the Bible as a whole. 
But the point here is that there is intentionality in this letter by Peter and ultimately by the Holy Spirit in the selectivity of the content that is in it. And so uh, an interesting, I find it interesting that when Peter sums up his own letter, he doesn't use the word suffering like I did. Suffering has come up in every single chapter in this letter. <laughs> Yet Peter says, I've written to you briefly with declarations and exhortations. And he doesn't mention suffering. But this, this letter, we know, is for not just for the churches in Asia Minor, but it's a letter for the whole church. And it's a letter then that applies to every Christian and every church at all times and in all places, especially when the church is under attack. And so according to Peter, what is this letter about? Well, we said it, exhortations and declarations. First, this letter is about exhortations, that is, moral commands of action. Peter wants us to read this letter and to, then to do stuff. Right? He wants us to prepare our minds for action, to commit ourselves to live holy lives of obedience to our Heavenly Father. He wants us to put away all these things like malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, slander, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to be honorable in all our conduct, to submit ourselves to all lawful authorities, to love our spouses with gentleness. He puts it in short at one point, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Those things aren't all easy. Peter wants us to do good even while we suffer. He wants us to be united together in Christ in love and humility towards one another. To be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us when we are asked to, to cover over one another's faults with love. To humble ourselves under God's hand and trusting ourselves to his sovereign care. Peter wants elders to shepherd the flock well, to resist the devil and to trust in God to uphold and deliver his church. That's a lot of exhortations, and that is not an exhaustive list. But these exhortations come upon the foundation of the many declarations of grace that he gives throughout the letter. He says exhortations and declarations. Declarations that this is the true grace of God. Peter begins the letter with a breathtaking description of the grace of God as an imperishable inheritance guaranteed for the suffering and persecuted church. This grace is indestructible even in the face of the fires of tribulation and will only result for God's people in the fullness of their salvation coming to them. This salvation is not new as if it had dropped out of the sky completely, but rather the fulfillment, he says, of the many prophecies concerning the mercy of God recorded by the prophets themselves. The passage from which we also is, uh, we take in part of our doctrine of inspiration comes from 1 Peter. Now the Savior who was before the foundation of the world has come, Peter has told us in this letter, and he's given himself up in a humble suffering sacrifice. So we would be reconciled to God. Even more by his work, we are being made into a living temple and made a priesthood of believers offering our sacrifices of worship. Whatever we were before, we are now in Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own personal possession. Our Savior has healed our wounds with his own, and returned us 
who were straying sheep to the overseer of our souls. And we know that our Savior has come, according to 1 Peter. And we know that he will come again. That he is now the great chief shepherd of the sheep who will bring judgment upon sinners and bring deliverance to his people. We know that God will restore us, that he will heal and help us. And so we don't engage in in fulfilling this grand call to action that Peter gives in the exhortations uh, from, from an idea that by our obedience we might merit affection or kindness from God. Rather, rather, he exhorts us to live a holy life in the midst of suffering because of the reality of grace in Jesus Christ. We do not obey God from a place of weakness and fear, hoping that by our own strength and confidence that we will somehow overcome. We obey from our strength and confidence in the Lord. For where we are weak, he is strong. And so this is a, a fundamental summary of what the, first, the letter of 1 Peter is about. It's exhortations and declarations. But to kind of pin it all together, uh, we could, we could summar, summarize it also as perseverance in grace. Because Peter says, I've written to you briefly these exhortations and these declarations that this is indeed the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This letter then is about, in some sense, at least about assurance. It is about shoring up the faith of a struggling church that is beset on all sides by the devil. In the midst of such suffering as they were enduring, one might well wonder, is the grace of God true? Have I missed it? Did I mess it up somehow? Everyone around me screaming about how I'm dishonoring the Roman gods by doing this. Are they right? Do I need to rethink this? But Peter has said he has written them this letter to assure them by declaration that this gospel of Jesus Christ is the true grace of God. There is no other. Truth is a funny word these days. I've got my truth. You've got your truth. There's truth with a capital T. There's truth with a lowercase t. Uh, And... Um, and, and all, and it's hard whenever I see someone online talking about their speaking their truth. I guess I roll my eyes, just like you probably do. Uh, um, but that's not how truth works, right? If it's my truth, then it's opinion, or maybe it's experience. But truth is objective. Feelings are not objective. Emotions are not objective. As much as people may feel that they might be, as much as I might want them to be, they are not objective reality. Something that is true must also be falsifiable, logically speaking. If you're going to make a true statement, then you must make a statement that has a test. It must be either true or false. It can't just be true because I just believe it or true because I just say it or I think it. And so logic requires this. And, and now something could also be true in part and false in part as well. If you're talking about, if we're talking about truth and falsehood, not everything just falls in those nice clean lines. And life, as we know, can get pretty muddy. And so Peter says, I want to be very clear. This gospel 
This Jesus, this mercy, this cross, this suffering, this death and resurrection, this faith and hope, this is the true grace of God through and through. So stand firm in it. Stand firm in it because the devil himself is set against you. Along with him in the fallen order of this very world and even the remaining corruption of your body seek to lead you astray. Stand firm. Resist the devil. Give the answer for the hope that is in you. Be ready. Don't puff yourself up with self-sufficiency. Embrace your insufficiency and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't be surprised when the world despises you because you won't indulge in its sins and its debauchery. Because you won't bend the knee to whatever the societal consensus is at the moment. Stand firm in the grace of God, for he will carry you through. And this letter is very important. I mean, we have seen such radical change in the last 30 years of understanding basic humanity. I mean, it is utterly incredible. I mean, I remember back in 2015 when Obergefell went through and, uh, and it was, you know, and, and so, and it's like, well, you know, in the, and saying, hey, if you, the arguments that you do for same-sex marriage, those could apply to transgender stuff. And they said, that won't happen. That won't be an issue. Stop worrying about it. Stop being so concerned. Stop being, you're overreacting. You know, just kind of this. And then it's been seven years. <laughs> and, and, even with, and the change has been even faster than anything else we've ever seen. The radical change that we've seen has been has spread so fast, and by the and, you know again, and if you go back and go, hey, well, this, we said this was going to happen, it, the response is usually, well, shut up, bigot, <laughs> and so and that's usually the the response you get. Now, Peter says to us, stand firm in the grace of God. Paul tells us, don't return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus tells us, pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. Do good to them. And so this is the letter of 1 Peter. Trust God in the midst of suffering. And then Peter closes the whole thing up on a brief word about the community of the church. And and I'll be brief on this part as well. But he describes it very interestingly here. And and what I'm calling the loving fellowship of the church and the peaceful union we have in Christ. And so first, we see the loving fellowship. Uh, He has this reference to uh, she who is in Babylon. Babylon is most likely a reference to Rome, uh, which would fit into the theme of exile with with which Peter had opened his letter to the the diaspora, the churches that are in the diaspora, uh, that idea the church is in exile. Um, uh, And so the she would be in reference to a church. So the church in Rome, essentially, I highly doubt Peter's like saying, like, my wife says hi, uh, or, um, or another nameless female Christian, all right? Um, from, I mean, at that time, it would be like Cairo, Africa, is where Babylon would be, the city. So, so uh, it's more like this is Rome, and this is the church in Rome uh, that sends her greetings. There's a lot been written and said about the kiss of love. Uh, Paul mentions a holy kiss in three of his own letters. Uh, this apparently was a part of how Christians would greet one another in the early church. Uh, as Presbyterians, we couldn't imagine incorporating this into our greetings of one another. Um, we can barely muster a handshake. Uh, but 
it, uh, but it was these gestures of affection like this and how we regard one another as brothers and sisters in the faith that led uh, uh, the enemies of the church and the secular Roman government to accuse the church of things like incest. Uh, because they were like, ew, what, what are you doing? Like, why do you do that? Because your brothers and sisters, kiss of love, just all this, you know, weird stuff. But it's interesting that it is the affection of the church that drew attacks. <laughs> it's how we loved one another and cared for each other that drew attacks from the outside. And even more, our culture today doesn't have an understanding of affectionate relationships that aren't sexual. They just, don't have, they just don't have an understanding. If there's two guys that are friends, it's like, well, they must be gay or they're closeted or something like that. And you're like, no, they're just friends. <laughs> like, that's just how it works. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's like when you go to Jonathan and David, they're like, no, they weren't gay. They were just two men who cared for one another. Like, you can care for another person of the same sex without being uh, gay or being sexually attracted. Like, it just, it's okay. Like, <laughs> it's been that way for a long time. It's all right. But we have here a, a church that, that cares for one another, that greets and welcomes each other as family, as brothers and sisters, that cares for each other, that looks out for each other's needs, and is glad to see one another, that re- receives one another in affection. He's writing to at least about seven churches in this area at this time. And so, he's, you know, so, so when you would meet another Christian, it's great. When you meet another, another believer, when you're out and about, you're traveling or something like that, it's like, hey... There's another brother, right? There's a sister, right? There's somebody in my faith, in my family, my extended family, and I get to meet them. That's a, a thing. So, uh, you know, it's, we, we get that experience when we travel. And so we have this loving fellowship in the church. And we also have a loving fellowship that is defined by a peaceful union in Christ. And, and what I mean here is that we're not a family of believers because we have a common enemy. That's important because that's often like, especially in like politics right now, the only thing that seems to unite one side or, or like the Republicans or the Democrats is who they're against. Because as soon as they get in power, then they start fighting because they don't agree about anything else except who they don't like. <laughs> and so, but that is not what makes us Christians. We are not united by the fact that we have a common enemy. We do have a common enemy, but that's not what unites us. What unites us together is Christ. We are united together in him. And the peace that we have in him. In truth, what Peter gives here is a benediction. Peace to all who are in Christ. We are united together in Christ as the people of God. Because we have been brought together in him. In doing so, Christ brings peace between us and God. He brings peace between each other. And he brings peace even internally to ourselves. And so it's crucial to understand the message of 1 Peter about hope, about endurance, about faith that comes in, the suffering, in suffering in the context of the local church. Because we live our lives as Christians, not in individual silos or family silos, but as a family who together weeps together, rejoices together, and who one day will enter into the glorious kingdom of God together when Christ returns. And so we have in here, and First Peter, a letter of hope to a suffering church. And I would encourage you to take time this week to read the letter of First Peter yourselves in one sitting. Just try to read it all the way through. And then ask yourself and prayerfully consider what aspects of God's grace do you need declared that Peter declares in this letter? Where do you need to be assured in your own struggles? 
What call to action is particularly uh, appropriate and sensitive to your heart? Where are you in the midst of the fight? How can you stand firm in the grace of God today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a faithful Savior, that in Jesus we have one who has suffered, who knows what suffering is, but who redeems our suffering. And Father, we pray that we would follow you faithfully, that we would take seriously the exhortations and the declarations of Peter in this letter, that we would, by your grace and by the call to action you give us, stand firm in the faith and in the grace of God, for we are in the midst of a fight. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to fight, not with weapons, not with a sword, but with the word of your grace. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless your church, lead us, help us, and guide us, for we are yours. And there are often times where we are weak, where we don't think we're going to make it, where we are doubting. And we pray, Lord, that in those times that we would remember to turn to 1 Peter and that we would find assurance and strength to press forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.